I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. The most important stories we ever tell, the most important stories are the stories we tell ourselves. When you're looking in the mirror, or when you're driving, or when you're talking to yourself, what do you say? What are your mantras? What do you repeat? What are your narratives? Do you say that you're ugly? Do you nitpick your face? Do you criticize your own body? Do you criticize and repeat your own small character flaws? Do you always notice what's wrong with yourself? Physically, emotionally, mentally? Is your story that you tell yourself that you're stupid or foolish? Do you tell yourself that the world hates you, or that you're a failure, or that you're unworthy, or that you're unintelligent? Do you ask why things always happen to you? Think about our culture versus truth. It's worth money for you to criticize yourself. It's economically viable for others, for product makers, for company owners. It's economically viable if you hate yourself. If you need to fix yourself, if you have a lot wrong with yourself, it's big money for us to tell ourselves negative stories. It's big money for us to criticize ourselves. Simply put, if we have a lot wrong with ourselves, then we need a lot of fixing. And if we need a lot of fixing, that means we need a lot of products to fix ourselves. In fact, we need to spend a lot of money buying these fixes. Take me, for example. Here's some stories I can tell. I have a permanent traumatic brain injury. I don't make a lot of money. I am three and a half inches shorter than the average height of a man in the United States and two inches shorter than the average man worldwide. But even though I'm short, I carry a lot of weight on my frame. And my BMI, my body mass index, has been in the overweight to obese range my entire adult life. And what else is true? I forget things often. I struggle to place events in time. I have a seizure disorder. All of these things are true. I could tell them to myself as mantras. I could tell them to myself as narratives. And if I did tell these stories as regular repeating mantras, I'd be being honest. I would be telling myself the truth. Or I could be honest with myself using other phrases. I could be honest with myself telling other stories. For example, it is also true that I am incredibly curious. I love to learn about everything. I'm a voracious reader. I read every single day. I also love the natural world. I'm observant. I'm patient when I'm inside and I'm patient when I'm outside. I'm capable. I love getting to know people and listening to their stories and understanding them for the first time. I'm also adaptable which is the number one survival trait. 
and I'm a survivor of multiple traumas. So I know how to suffer and then recover. I know how to be injured, then healthy again. I accept my flaws. I work on my weaknesses. And I attempt to be disciplined in what I choose to do daily. In my writing, in my teaching, in my parenting, in my physical training. All of these things are true. So, which story should I tell myself? And which story should you tell yourself? Which stories should you tell yourself? Which narratives should you focus on? Which narratives should you repeat? The negative things about myself are true and the negative things about yourself are also true. But the positive things about me are also true. And the positive things about you are also true. So, should you choose to be positive and loving and honest and decisive going forward? Should you choose to make a wonderful life for yourself? Should you choose to make your own better choices? Neuroscientists call this an internal locus of control. And this episode is all about that internal locus of control. I got into the concept of internal locus of control when I read Lawrence Gonzalez's essay collection, Deep Survival, a book about the neuroscience of survival. My mother gave me the book for Christmas, and when I looked him up, I found out that Lawrence Gonzalez is one of the preeminent neuroscientists in the world studying survival and writes for National Geographic. So I looked up his National Geographic writing and found out that he writes these simple one-page survival prompts with a few examples from his neuroscience research. One of these is called Control Your Destiny. Gonzalez writes, Julian Rotter, a professor of psychology at the University of Connecticut, developed the concept of what he calls locus of control. Some people, he says, view themselves as essentially in control of the good and bad things they experience, i.e., they have an internal locus of control. Others believe that things are done to them by outside forces or happen by chance, an external locus. These worldviews are not absolutes. Most people combine the two. But... Research shows that those with strong internal locus are better off. In general, they're less likely to find everyday activities distressing. They don't often complain, whine, or blame. And they take compliments and criticism in stride. The importance of this mentality is evidenced by tornado statistics. In the past two decades, Illinois has had about 50% more twisters than Alabama, but far fewer fatalities. The discrepancy can be explained in part by a study in the journal Science, which found that Alabama residents believe their fate was controlled by God, not by them. The people of Illinois, meanwhile, 
were more inclined to have confidence in their own abilities and to take action. This doesn't mean we should be overconfident. Rather, we should balance confidence with reasonable doubt, self-esteem with self-criticism. We should do this each day. As Al Siebert put it in his book, The Survival Personality, your habitual ways of reacting to everyday events influences your chances of being a survivor in a crisis. So that was the entry by Lawrence Gonzalez in National Geographic. And there are three things I think about with that prompt. First, the really interesting tornado statistic from the journal Science, which is really about ways of thinking and the power of thought. Because I've been to both Illinois and Alabama and spent some time there, and both are very, very religious states. People of many faiths and versions of the same faiths, but all of them religious. I looked it up, and Illinois only has a 3% atheist population. 3%. Alabama only has a 1% atheist population. So the overwhelming majority of both states believe in God, but how they believe in God is very different. The journal Science in its study found that people in Illinois more often believe in free will, that God created humans, but he allows for humans to make their own choices. The humans then make good and bad choices, and they therefore have the opportunity to determine their future. But in Alabama, most people believe in the concept of predetermination. The God is the same, but God did not set up a system of free will. Instead, God preordains everything. Trust God and let things happen because God has a plan. He holds you in his hands. If you're struggling, wait and trust God because God has this. The difference between those two might seem subtle, but it's stark when it comes to survival situations. Believing that you have no free will, but that God has a detailed plan for your life is external locus of control. Even if you believe in a good God, so instead of having an internal locus of control and therefore making good choices, choosing to do the next right thing for yourself, you sit back and let things happen. You're a victim of God's plan, which in the end is supposed to be good, but also sometimes, well, you could be a victim of the devil who lies in wait and lurks for you. And tornado statistics and survival rates show that it is much, much better to have an internal locus of control. The second thing I think about is that these aren't absolutes, internal versus external. There's a spectrum. Like almost everything in life, there's a spectrum. It's not black and white. There's a wide variety in between. So if you have a really external locus of control and until this moment in time, you felt like you're the victim of the world, then you can move yourself on the spectrum towards an internal locus. So the third thing is, you've got to figure out where you are on that spectrum, where you are from internal to external locus of control. So 
just like Lawrence Gonzalez asked, here's the simple question. Do you often whine, complain, or blame? When things aren't going how you want, when you're struggling, when you face something that you don't like, when you face something you see as negative, do you often whine, complain, or blame? Are any of those three your defaults? Or do you more often go out and do something about it? Do you more often recognize that a series of choices got you to exactly where you are? And if you want something different for the future, you need to make different choices. Believing that would be an internal locus of control. This next section comes with a trigger warning. It's the story of an incredible person, but there's a story within that person's life that's pretty horrifying. So if you'd like to, just fast forward a couple minutes here. Maya Angelou was an American poet, memoirist, and civil rights activist. She published seven autobiographies, three books of essays, many books of poetry. She's credited with a list of plays, movies, television shows, in a career that lasted more than 50 years. More than 50 years of writing. She's received dozens of awards, more than 50 honorary degrees. Absolutely an incredible person. She has Grammys from multiple decades. She was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, won the NAACP Image Award two different times. She was honored by U.S. presidents three times. She won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2010. She won the Women in Film Crystal Award. She won the Langston Hughes Medal. She won the Glamour Award for the Poet. This is an amazing and varied and able, capable writer. Maya Angelou was incredible. But if we go back into her childhood, her childhood was very difficult. She not only experienced horrific racial discrimination, but when she was eight years old, she was raped by her mother's boyfriend. Eight years old. She didn't know how to deal with it, so she told her uncles, and her uncles took the man out and kicked him to death. And when I first heard that story, when I read about her childhood, I mean, honestly, I thought good riddance to the fuck. I mean, he got what he deserved. But his death didn't change her trauma. Someone else's consequence doesn't change our trauma, even if it's direct in its relationship. And young Maya Angelou, she didn't speak for five years after that incident. From eight to 13, she didn't speak. But she lived in her own mind and she developed in her own mind. And she chose to become a writer. She chose to become a writer with a powerful voice. 
And I think of all her poems and essays that I've read, and I've read a lot of different material written by her, one of her most powerful works is her poem, Still I Rise. So I'm going to read it and just think about the internal locus of control in this poem. Still I Rise by Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lowered eyes. Shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts... Of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave, I rise. I rise, I rise. My friend Luke Mazziotti and I have a tradition. Every November, when the days start to get really short, when the temperature drops, when it starts to get dark in the early afternoon, and it's full dark by early evening. We go down to the river. We wait for one of the first really cold days, where it's low 40s or high 30s, when the water will be incredibly cold. And right before dark, we swim across the river, the Willamette River, to the island. And then we forage for wood, and we work together, and we build a little campfire on the island. And then we take driftwood and we pile it on and we get a kind of bonfire going. And then we spend a couple hours, drink some beer and talk about our lives. And then after a couple hours of this, we put out the fire. We collect everything, put everything in dry bags, put them on our backs. And then in the full dark, in the cold, we swim back across the river to the shore that we cannot see. And this tradition is one of the things that I look forward to every year. And Luke does too. And every once in a while, our lives get busy and we don't make it happen. But it's a tradition that we're going to keep on. And this year, Luke asked me, 
if I wanted to maybe swim in the river one day every single month out of the year, start in January and go through. But I got COVID and we missed our January swim. So we decided to start in February. We'd swim February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. And then we'd swim on New Year's Day to finish our 12-month cycle. So our February swim was really cold. It was really cold. But we dipped in at the boat ramp at Alton Baker, came back out, and we were standing there drinking tea, our bodies smoking in the cold. And Luke said, we got to go back in. So we dipped again. And then just last night, we went for our March swim. But it's a little warmer this time of year. And I thought, March 31st, it's warm enough. I wanted to swim down the river a little bit. So we stashed our gear at a boat ramp. And we hiked up river just a few hundred feet. And we swam out into the current. And laughing at the cold, because it was still pretty cold. We swam down river with the current and got out at the boat ramp. And when we got out, we were in such a good mood. We'd had such a good time. Luke was like, do we got to do that again? So we did. We hiked up river a few hundred feet again. We scrambled down through the ivy and the rocks, got to the shore, swam out into the current, swam down river, got out, and we felt alive. We felt great. We were cold, but I did some jumping jacks and push-ups, and we got warmer. We can do these little things. This is only once a month. We can do these little things that make us feel differently about our lives. Or we can live 80 years in our climate-controlled boxes. We can go to other boxes to visit people We can buy food from boxes. We can work in climate-controlled boxes. And eventually, we can die. Or we can go out into the natural world. We can have adventures. We can be intentional about doing things that bring us joy, even if they're slightly hard, even if we face adversity. We can be intentional about challenging ourselves and giving our days some variation our weeks and months, some variation, something to look forward to. We can be intentional about doing things that make us feel truly alive. My mother had a difficult childhood. She was an introvert and sensitive And her father could be incredibly harsh. He was a naval aviator. He flew off aircraft carriers in two wars. Then he was an engineering professor. Then he was a math textbook writer. And none of that led him to appreciate art. But my mom always loved art. Always pursued art. When I was little, she would carry me on her back to her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree classes. And I would go to her art studios with her. And I grew up knowing the smell of those various studios, knowing the smell of clay, sculptures, metal sculptures, wood. I always saw my mom drawing 
drawing with pencil, drawing with ink, drawing with charcoal. She always painted. When we lived in Tucson, Arizona, when I was a kid, I would go and forge the desert, finding bones that she would make into mobiles and sculptures. She would boil down carcasses and wind bones in copper wire. She was always creating. She was always drawing and painting. My mom was always taking us to art studios and art museums and gallery shows. And we were brought up to appreciate art. And she pursued art. She pursued the process. But when my mom was young, when my mom was older, when my mom was middle-aged and even older still, she didn't sell a lot of art. She made art. She always made art. But she didn't sell a lot of art. And then, in her 60s, she moved back to Tucson, Arizona, and she started working hours daily, just working hours in a really nice studio in the back of her property in Tucson, Arizona, and she would paint for six, eight, ten hours every single day. She started producing one oil painting every single day, posting it on daily artworks, Daily Paintworks, writing a meaningful post about it, posting about that piece of art on Instagram. And then she started selling work. And then she started selling more work. She kept pursuing the process. And she started selling nine out of ten paintings she produced. She increased her prices. She wrote more meaningful posts along with her artwork. It was always incredible, but now it was selling. And as she increased her prices, she now makes what a wealthy doctor makes. But for her oil paintings, people follow her and love her posts. They love her writing. They love her artwork. My mom's killing it in the art world. But the thing is, she was always killing it, all growing up. I loved her drawings. I loved her paintings. I loved her sculptures. I loved her pottery. She was always killing the process. She always pursued her art. She never let anything, and certainly not not selling artwork, stop her from pursuing what she loved. She chose art. She chose art over and over and over again. And in the end, her process worked out financially, but also... She's now lived an entire life of producing art. So even if she had never sold, even if she wasn't an incredibly successful artist, which she is now, she would still have lived the life that she chose. And in that way, my mom, with her artwork, always had an internal locus of control. It doesn't just have to be bad things that affect you. You can also give over power to good things. You can let quote unquote good luck determine your future or good circumstances or blessings be the reason for something current and positive in your life. For example, in writing, <clears throat> most authors that publish literary poems, essays, and fiction have earned an MFA in one of those fields, a master's in fine arts. 
That's how those literary writers gained their knowledge and connections. That's how they fine-tuned their skills in the literary world. And in writing, there are also class distinctions and privilege differences as well. Most famous literary writers in the United States graduated from the top MFA programs. For example, in fiction, where I've published three literary novels, there are a lot of wonderful university programs, everything from Brown University to the University of Virginia, the University of Montana, the University of Arizona, UC Irvine, and the top school in the nation for creative writing, the University of Iowa. I applied and sent my stories when I was young to the University of Arizona and to Iowa's writing program, and I was rejected by both programs. But I also applied to the University of Montana's fiction program, and I got accepted. I was so excited. I was elated. I'd gotten rejected by two of the top fiction programs in the nation, but I also got into one of the best fiction programs in the world. So I was going to attend. I was going to go to Montana. I was young and married. Jenny and I, we were going to move with the girls to Montana. But then, as part of my GTF placement, my TA placement, I needed to take the GRE, the graduate record exam. The problem is, I've never really cared about standardized tests. In fact, I don't really believe in them. So in not caring about them and not believing in their validity, I also don't spend much time preparing for them. I don't care about them, so I don't spend time thinking about them. I don't practice them. But I knew the GRE was important because it had to do with scholarship money. So I took one practice test in the GRE. And in my one practice test, I did all right. I did pretty well. And I thought, good enough. Signed up for a test at a testing center, and that was that. But the night before my GRE, both my daughters got sick. They got the flu. And I chose to get up with them and hang out with them and take care of them until the middle of the night. So I only got a few hours of sleep. And then I went to this test that I hadn't practiced very much, very, very low on sleep, feeling exhausted. I drank coffee to kind of amp myself up to get my brain going. And the first section of the test was math, and I happened to be naturally talented in math, so I aced the math. The next section was reading, and I'm a pretty good reader, but I was getting tired. And in reading and comprehension, vocabulary, I got an okay story like a mediocre to solid score. The final section was writing. And I'm not good at standardized writing. It's not a natural talent of mine. And I hadn't practiced it. And I hadn't taken more than one practice test. And I'd been up half the night with my sick daughters. And I took this standardized writing test. And I did it terribly. The problem was... I was going to be a GTF. I was going to teach a section of intro college writing. And that was going to pay my scholarship to the University of Montana. Except I now had a terrible standardized writing score from the GRE. So Montana called me and they pulled my funding as a teacher of intro writing. 
And they said I could teach math to college freshmen during my scholarship. Except I didn't want to teach math. I happen to be naturally talented in math, but I despise math. And I certainly didn't want to teach two or three years of intro college math to earn a scholarship in creative writing. And I tried to convince them, based on my stories, could I teach intro fiction or something else? And they were like, no, your writing score was really bad. It was worse than all the other people who were accepted to the MFA program. So I basically didn't have a scholarship. And I could either pay $35,000 a year or I could teach math for a partial scholarship or I could not attend the university and not do the graduate program in creative writing. So I chose not to attend the University of Montana. Instead, I decided to read one Nobel Prize winning author each year for the next few years, every single book they wrote, one each year, Ernest Hemingway for a year, Toni Morrison, everything she wrote for a year, William Faulkner, everything he wrote for a year, do my own reading program, and write every single day for an hour or two before I went to work, getting up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, writing one or two hours every single day until I got better at writing. I let Montana know that I was going to do my own home fiction program, my own MFA that costs zero dollars, and I do it in the morning at my kitchen table in the dark. And that way, I would earn my own MFA. There are some other literary writers who also didn't get MFAs at top universities. For example, one of my favorite writers, Willie Vlotten, who's a singer-songwriter for the DeLines and Richmond Fontaine, and he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a singer-songwriter. He's written some incredible literary novels, novels that I adore. And he didn't get an MFA at all. Willie and I were set up by Brian Juniman, the marketing director of the PNBA, the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association. We were set up for a night of drinks with some famous authors, at a bar in a hotel in Portland. Brian loves me and Willie, especially because we don't have master's degrees in fiction, yet we still write literary novels. So Brian Juneman sets us up this drink night, and Willie and I are there drinking PBR on tap for $2 a glass. And this very, very famous writer who's about to release his short story collection, which he only got released because he went to the University of Iowa. He's drinking single malt scotch, and he's obviously jealous of Willie's incredible writing prowess, and he leans across the table, and in his fake British accent, says, Willie, where did you get your MFA, your master's fine arts degree in fiction? And Willie, who grew up in Nevada and worked all these labor jobs, he kind of looks at me and at Brian and at this famous writer across the table from him. And he leans forward and he goes, 
oh, uh, no, no, man, no, um, I, I never got a degree in writing. I didn't do an MFA in fiction. I actually, uh, I drove a chemical truck out of Reno. And that's all Willie says. And the famous writer from the University of Iowa, the top writing program in the world, he doesn't know what to say. Willie just sits and drinks a big swallow of his beer. And the famous writer doesn't know what to say because he's used to everybody being impressed with his University of Iowa degree, which he's given so much credit to. But Willie, man, he just drove a chemical truck out of Reno and made up his own stories in his mind. And then he wrote those stories down, and then they became incredible novels. Because they made their own luck. This episode is dedicated to my mother, Pamela C. Hoffmeister, the oil painter, and Willie Vlotten, singer, songwriter, and novelist. Because they didn't wait for something to happen to them. They pursued their art and made it happen themselves, demonstrating an incredible reserve and internal locus of control each. And to all of you out there who are listening, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Please give it five stars if you have a moment or write a quick review or recommend it to someone else. And I thank you today for listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my-